0: In my first video for this series, I mentioned a poet who began a poem with the line, I tremble with gratitude. And that poet's name is Wendell Berry. And he's in fact not just a poet, he's also a farmer. In 1965, he and his wife and their two kids moved onto a 12 acre farm in Kentucky, which they ended up turning into a 117 acre homestead, which means that he's spent a great amount of his life working the land and observing the rhythms of the created world. And you can tell that when you read his poetry because it's a theme that comes up again and again. Take for instance his poem, The Peace of Wild Things, which is one of my wife's personal favorites. He begins by describing the anxiety that he sometimes feels. When despair for the world grows in me, he says, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. And then he talks about the relief and comfort that he takes in those moments from the created world around him. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief, I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Two things stand out to me about that. First, I find it interesting that part of what seems to give Wendell Berry a sense of peace is that the created world around him doesn't depend on him. The wood drake and the great heron, the still water and the stars, they exist and they continue to exist independent of him. They don't need him. They don't wait for him. They simply are. And there's comfort in that, especially when what's burdening you are anxieties about the future and how that future might depend on you. It's a comfort to know that there is a world that exists outside of you a world that's unbothered by your worries. But what really intrigues me is the thing he says in the final line, for a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. What does that mean? What is the grace of the world? Well, keep in mind that the word grace means something very similar to the word gift. And I think that's what this poem is communicating. I think that's what is giving Wendell Berry peace. It's the fact that he sees creation as a gift, something that needn't have been, something that doesn't depend on him in any way, but blesses him all the same. Elsewhere, in another poem, he he writes about the experience of getting old. And at the end of that poem, he begins to speak to his wife. And he says, And you who are as old almost as I am, I love as I loved you young. Except that old, I am astonished at such a possibility and am duly grateful. I think there's something very similar going on here. Except this time, it isn't his anxiety or worry that wakes him up to the gift that is creation. It's the fact that he's getting old, and then he's gaining a new sense of just how frail life is. And when he looks at his wife, he's struck all of a sudden by the fact that she's there and she's alive. He's astonished, he says, at the possibility of loving her because he realizes that he has no more control over her life than he does over his. She doesn't have to be alive. She didn't have to be his wife, but she is. And when he realizes that, he says that he is duly grateful. Now, I know this seems like a lot of talk about Wendell Berry and what's supposed to be a study of the general thanksgiving, but there's a reason for that. It's because I think that Berry's poetry, it's really a a wonderful illustration of what it means to live with genuine gratitude, with a sense of, of wonder and astonishment at the blessings of life, with an awareness that we are surrounded by good things, that we neither chose nor earned, and that the only proper response is to be duly grateful. In other words, I think that these poems capture the spirit of this prayer. What's more, one of the most prominent themes in Wendell Berry's poetry, one of the things that he's so aware of, that he's so in constantly in awe over, is the gift of creation itself. And that's the first thing that we thank God for in the general thanksgiving. We bless you, the prayer says, for our creation. But why do we do that? What does it mean to say that creation is a gift for which we need to thank God? The Bible begins with a statement about the origins of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Christians who read these words today, we often think about the claims that they make and how those relate to the claims of modern science. Many scientists have attempted to offer purely natural explanations for how the universe came into existence, but Genesis says that God created it. Scientists have suggested that that the biological diversity of life on earth came about as the result of millions of years of random genetic mutations and a process of natural selection. But Genesis says that God himself brought about the diversity of plant and animal life, and he did so according to a certain order and design. How do we reconcile these apparently contradictory claims? That's a question that's often on the forefront of our minds when we read Genesis. And it's not an an unimportant one. But we need to remember that those were not the questions being asked by the people for whom Genesis was originally written. Almost everyone in the ancient world credited the origins of the world to to a God of some kind. There's nothing very surprising about that. What was surprising, however, was what Genesis had to say about why God created the world. You see, in most of, the, most of the ancient Mesopotamian creation myths, the reason that the gods created the world and then created human beings is because, because they just can't help it or because they need, they need creation and they need humans for some reason. Some ancient religions suggested that creation came about because of some kind of sexual union between a male and female deity of some kind, and creation is just the sort of inevitable procreative result of this union. Others suggested that creation was the result of a a kind of primordial conflict between the gods, who then fashioned human beings because... They needed creatures who could work the land and tend the animals and provide food for the gods. In other words, in the world in which Genesis' original readers lived, most people thought of the world around them as just some kind of inevitable, maybe some unintentional product of divine fertility, or as something that that existed to meet the needs of the gods. The Christians, of course, couldn't accept either of these answers because neither of them line up with what we know to be true of God. After all, as we discussed in the last session, God is perfectly happy in his own life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His goodness and love and joy are all fully expressed eternally without creation. To quote Karl Barth, God has no need of us. He has no need of the world and heaven and earth at all. He is rich in himself. He has fullness of life. All glory, all beauty, all goodness and holiness reside in him. He is sufficient unto himself. He is God, blessed in himself. To what end then the world? That is the riddle of creation. And the answer that Genesis gives to this riddle is quite simply that God creates for no other reason than that he chooses to. Genesis doesn't give another explanation for why the world than the simple fact that in the beginning, God gives life to something other than himself. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and takes immense delight in doing so. At the end of each day of creation in Genesis one, we're told that God looks out upon what he has done and says, it is good. And that may not seem like that big of a deal, especially if you've been reading the Bible for a while and, and you've already heard what Genesis has to say, you've read this story. But if you stop and think about it, the implications are pretty remarkable. Because it means, if it's true, it means that everything you and I see Everything we see around us, from the clouds drifting across the sky, to songbirds chirping away in trees, from the endless expanse of the known universe, to the unimaginable complexity of a single strand of DNA, the air we breathe, the ground upon which we stand, the sun that warms us, the rain that waters the earth, none of it, none of it was inevitable. None of it was needed by God. None of it ever had to exist. And all of it exists for no other reason than that God is good, and he chose to give the gift of life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's very easy to forget. It's easy to go about our days entirely unaware that that we are surrounded by an endless array of unnecessary and unearned gifts. It's also easy to forget that we ourselves are gifts. The description of creation in Genesis 1 ends, of course, with the creation of man and woman and the declaration of God when he sees them, that this gift is not only good, but very good. And of course, there's something else that's unique about the man and woman. God creates them in his own image, and he gives them dominion over all the rest of the creatures, and then he tells them, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Have you ever noticed that? That God does not only give life to the human creatures, but tells them that he has made all the plants and fruit trees for them as a gift. And the man and woman are the only creatures who are gifted with the ability to interpret the world around them and respond to God with language. Now, Pope John Paul II drew attention to this in some of his writing, and from it, he made this observation. In the whole of creation, it can only be said of man that a gift was conferred on him. The visible world was created for him. Man appears in creation as the one who received the world as a gift. Think about that. Man, the human creature in Genesis 1, appears in creation as the one who receives the world as a gift. That, according to Genesis, is what it is to be genuinely human. That is what we were made for. And that's part of what it means to be the image of God. We are the only creatures in all creation who have the ability to do what God does in Genesis 1 to look at the world around us, at the sun and stars and lakes and hills, at the birds in the air and fish in the sea. We and we alone are able not just to see them but to recognize them as gifts and to call them as God does, to call them good. We were made to receive the world as a gift. But that's not what the man and woman do, is it? At least not after a while. Just two chapters later in Genesis 3, the woman makes the fatal mistake of listening to the voice of a snake and eating from that one forbidden tree. And do you remember what the snake tells her? what this deception was that she believed, the snake says that God is a liar, that Eve won't really die if she eats from the tree. And in fact, that the only reason God wants to keep it from her is because he doesn't want to share his secret knowledge, that he's actually selfish and jealous and kind of petty and doesn't want her to be like him. In other words, what the serpent is telling her is that God isn't actually a giver and that the world isn't really a gift. And she believes it. And so does the man. Theologians have long puzzled over exactly what motivated Adam and Eve to disobey as they did. Some, such as Saint Augustine, claim that what drove them was pride, the desire to be their own masters. Others, such as St. Irenaeus, said that Adam and Eve's sin was actually the result of impatience and ingratitude. At the end of the day, though, it doesn't really matter because it really all amounts to the same thing. Adam and Eve didn't like being creatures. They didn't like the fact that their existence was an unearned gift. They wanted to take control of their own fate. And so, they refused to receive the world as a gift. As we begin the general thanksgiving, we say, We, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks. It's important to be clear about what we're saying here. By saying that we're unworthy, we don't mean that we're worthless. What we mean is that we do not deserve the gifts that we have been given that God doesn't owe us anything. That's what makes it all a gift. Also, we describe our thanksgiving as humble thanks. Again, this isn't a comment about how well or how badly we think of ourselves. Being humble doesn't mean thinking poorly of yourself. Humility is simply the recognition that that you're limited, that you're not self-sufficient, that you depend on others all of which is to say, we're not just humble because we're sinners, we're humble because we are creatures, because each and every one of us was born into a world of wonders that we did nothing to create. We were born into bodies that we neither chose nor designed. We were born into networks of families and friends that we did nothing to earn, and every breath that we take From the moment of our birth to the moment of our death is a gift. And so we do the only thing we can. We say thanks. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation. Creation is a gift you and I were brought into the world to receive it as such. So let us pause. Let us recognize the world around us and our very own lives for what they are, for gifts. Let us be like Wendell Berry and allow ourselves to feel astonished all over again. And then let us be duly grateful.